0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to One Peter and chapter four. It's our scripture for this morning. One Peter four. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every word is living, is operative. Holy Spirit, give me the words to say that I may speak well of Jesus, whose name I pray. Amen. So 1 Peter 4, and we're in verse 12, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in far as you share Christ's sufferings For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Well, Peter is offering a final word, really, on the series of reflections on the reality of suffering in the Christian life, which has been a theme of his letter. And he's bringing some of those reflections to a conclusion. And as we look at it together, I want to highlight four themes or four apparent paradoxes in verses 12 to 19 that describe the believer's response and engagement with suffering in their lives. The first apparent paradox is in verse 12 and 13. Joy in the midst of suffering. It is a, seems like a paradox. And then in um, verse 14, we have blessing in the midst of insults. And in verses 15 and 16, worship in the midst of stigma. And in the fourth place, the final paradox, trust in the midst of judgment, verses 17 through 19. So that's the outline of the passage. Joy amidst suffering, blessing amidst insult, worship amidst stigma, and trust amidst judgment. And they're very applicable today. Really are applicable today. How can we have joy in the middle of suffering? How can we enjoy blessing in the midst of insults? How can we worship amidst stigma? And how can we trust amidst judgment? I'm sure you all know Joni Erickson tarda And in 2011... She told an interviewer, for more than 10 years, I've dealt with chronic pain, which is very unusual for a quadriplegic like me. So piled on top of my quadriplegia, at times it seemed too much to bear. So I went back and re-examined my original views on divine healing to see what more I could learn. And what I discovered was that God still reserves the right to heal or not to heal as he sees fit. And rather than to try to frantically escape the pain, I relearned the timeless lesson of allowing my suffering to push me deeper into the arms of Jesus. I like to think of my suffering, my pain, as a sheepdog that keeps napping at my heels to drive me down the road to Calvary. Isn't that beautiful? Joni Erickson, who's a quadriplegic, who has been through cancer, who's lost her husband to cancer. And she says, I like to think of my suffering as a sheepdog that keeps snapping at my heels to drive me down the road to Calvary. And that is very much the attitude that Peter is writing to us in verses 12 to 19 to try to cultivate in all of our hearts and lives these by means of these four themes these four apparent paradoxes and peter is going to highlight for us god's grand design in our sufferings in our various trials well here is the main use of suffering peter is teaching us it is to push us deeper into the arms of jesus suffering is a sheepdog snapping at our heels to drive us down the road to Calvary. So let's look at verses 12 12 and 13, first of all, and the first of these paradoxes that capture the biblical teaching on how we are to respond to suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering. And it's worth noticing in verse 12 that Peter addresses his original hearers, Beloved. And he only does that one other time in his letter, chapter 2, verse 11. And both there and here, it's about to, it's signalling, he's about to tell us some hard truths. He knows what he's teaching is challenging and hard, not necessarily complicated to understand, but painful to perform and obey, difficult, costly. So he wants to remind us that as we, hear the teaching he loves us so this isn't some exercise in abstract instruction in a lecture room these aren't the commands of a tyrannical taskmaster demanding unthinking and unquestioned obedience this, no, no. peter is wanting to make disciples and here is how to make disciples here is how to be faithful in gospel ministry Here is how to be a faithful Christian friend. Speak the truth, but do it genuinely with love. Beloved, he says to them, he has hard things to say, but he wants them to know, first of all, that he cares for them deeply. So then look what he says, beloved, only the second time he uses it. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There is an awful lot in there, but do you see that just the two main parts of what Peter is saying? Suffering is coming. There is a fiery trial. It is going to be hot and it's going to be sore and it's going to be difficult to bear. But in the midst of it, Rejoice. Joy in the midst of suffering. So we need to figure out how these two things come together. He says about the suffering, it is a fiery trial, which connects us back to the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, 6 to 7, where he speaks, if you remember, that the testing of our faith is like fine gold when it is refined by fire. Our faith is going to be tested by various kind of fiery trials that will grieve us, and he's echoing the language now. So these form always bookends at the beginning and the end of the letter. And notice, he says, when it comes, not if, when, not if. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes. This is the normal Christian life: fiery trial. So get ready. Do not be surprised. Adjust your expectations accordingly. Following Jesus will not smooth out every bump in the road. It won't grease every wheel in the machinery of life. If you think that Jesus promised you a life of ease and pleasure, you've got a different Bible to me. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes. And notice this next phrase, as though something strange were happening to you. We, We aren't exceptional. We haven't been singled out for special treatment This is simply the normal Christian life. Do not be surprised. Well, then, if not surprised, what should we feel when suffering inevitably comes? Peter says we should rejoice, which is the paradox, the tension. Because it does hurt. I am grieved by various trials, we do weep. I am full of sorrow. Because of my sufferings. And you're saying rejoice? How, 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 can I, how do I make these things make sense? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Insofar is important. You see, a believer could go through suffering and not use it well. Peter is saying that our suffering can become the occasion of to know Christ better, of deepening fellowship with Jesus. And insofar as you use your sufferings to press into Christ and come to know more of Him, there can be joy. Which is what Jody Erickson Tarder was saying in that wonderful quotation I relearned the timeless lesson of allowing my sufferings to push me deeper into the arms of Jesus which is what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 10, when he says he longs to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There is a fellowship with Jesus in suffering that opens to us when we're led by our various fiery trials to love the world and the things of the world less, and learn to be satisfied more and more with Christ. And, that's, that's, and, and that is a test, because the world is very different in September to what it was in February. And things of the world, are, are, are by definition, they should be less important, because we can't do various things that we're used to, we do them in different ways. And really I think that suffering should lead us into Christ and cause us to love the world less. Suffering cuts the cord that ties us to the temporary pleasures of sin and trains our hearts to find satisfaction in Jesus. And this is what Peter means when he says that sharing in Christ's sufferings, this communion with Jesus in suffering, prepares us to rejoice and be glad when his glory is finally revealed at the last day. He's saying that suffering can train you to love Christ more and wean you from the world. Suffering teaches us that Jesus can be our heart's delight when earthly pleasures elude us and bodily pain or emotional trauma haunt our steps. Suppose for a moment that we could be free of suffering And free of sorrow and free of sin. So think of the day promised to every Christian for which my heart longs. Where we shall see glory and be at rest and peace in the garden city of the new Jerusalem. What a day that will be. And that is promised to us. But suppose you could have it and Jesus not be there. Could you be happy in such a place? Peter is saying it is God's design, part of his design in suffering, to teach us to love Christ more than ease and comfort and bodily rest here so that we can be endlessly happy with Jesus. Or so that we could never be happy were we to have rest and release from pain and reunion with loved ones in the sight of glory if Jesus Was not there. See, suffering here is to cut the bonds that tie us to earthly blessings and to teach us, as Samuel Rutherford puts it so well, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. It is the Lamb. The thing that makes heaven, heaven, is Jesus. The thing that makes heaven, heaven, is Jesus, and we can know Him now. It is the sight of his glorified wounds. Not just reunion with loved ones. Not not just the glorification of our bodies. Not just release from pain and sorrow. Those things are wonderfully promised to us. But none of those things in themselves is everlasting joy. It is the sight of his lovely face. It's nearness with him as he sits on the throne. It's seeing Jesus communion with Jesus that will make our hearts burst with gladness when he comes you'll be glad to know that eternity is not wonderful for you because I'll be there but because Jesus is there and until then God deploys deploys suffering in our lives to train us for that great day so that we can say even so come Lord Jesus how I long to see you and be with you forever Friends, eternity starts now and it's about Jesus. It's about loving Jesus. Jesus is the difference in life and in death. Joy in the midst of sorrow, not because of sorrow, but through sorrow we we train to cling to Christ to find our joys. Not in our creature comforts, Not not in being able to go and shop again with hundreds of people crammed into a small space. But our comfort is in Jesus, our Saviour, our Redeemer, our Lord. And secondly, Peter calls us to blessing in the midst of insult. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Luke records in Acts 5 when the apostles are arrested and forbidden to preach the gospel. And upon their release, they did so rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name of Jesus. They were full of joy that they could share in the sufferings of Christ. And Peter in verse 14 is telling us that part of the reason why they are so blessed, that they count themselves blessed if they're suffering for Christ's sake, it's a mark that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The reaction of your hostile persecutors is actually an assuring testimony the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Or well, let me just turn that around a little bit. The Holy Spirit's work is to make our lives and our witness pungent with the aroma of heaven so that people around us notice the smell of heaven. So, Peter is saying to the church that is beginning here when he's writing to them to face persecution, he's saying, Take heart. You do not think you have great gifts. You do not know what difference, what contribution you can make to the kingdom. Maybe you're quiet. You're seeking to be faithful as you plod on each day, seeking to be godly at home or at work or at school. And people mock you, they think you are weird. They leave you out. They shut you out. They say mean and hurtful things. They point the finger at you. Do you see what is really going on? That the spirit of glory and of God has made your life fragrant with the aroma of Christlikeness, and it is provocative. So you are blessed. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, plod on in faithfulness. Keep going in service to the Master because the Spirit of Christ is at work in you and there is a fragrant aroma of heaven. Isn't that a great way to look at it? That you smell with heaven? Isn't that great? And then, thirdly, worship in the midst of stigma. Verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so he's saying that not not all suffering is persecution. We live in an age, especially now, where people are easily triggered and take offence. And play the victim card at every provocation. But Peter is saying that you can't claim that all suffering is pers- persecution. If you break the law, or if you're a busybody meddling uninvited in the lives of others, although some people are nowadays, if you're a COVID marshal, you can meddle in uninvited in the lives of others. Then when people react badly, when official sanction falls, that is not Persecution. You're simply getting your comeuppance. And I'm not, by the way, telling you um, to be rude to COVID marshals. But that, that's how it goes. Stop playing the victim card. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. But if you suffer because you follow Jesus, therefore then glorify God. It might help you to understand that some of what Peter is saying to know at that time is that... He, The word Christian was not a name that the believers themselves used to describe themselves. If we were alive reading Peter's letter back in those days, we wouldn't call ourselves Christians, because it was a word of insult. Christian was the word that pagan people used by pointing the finger. It was a name that was heightened with social stigma. To be a Christian was a shameful thing. You get a sense of the attitudes of the ancient world towards Christians. There was graffiti that was found in the 19th century, scratched onto the wall of a building that dated 200 AD, which was a boarding school for imperial page boys, just at the end of the reign of one of the Roman emperors found on the Palatine Hill in Rome. And the graffiti was a drawing depicted a young man worshipping a crucified figure. And the name of the young man was Alexi, Alexi Minos. And the inscription read, Alexi Minos worships his God. And the crucified figure had the head of a donkey. So, do you see what was really going on in this boarding school, this boy's boarding school? One of those boys was a Christian, Alexi Minos. He worshipped Jesus, one boy. And the others mocked him and drew a graffiti on the wall to make a fool of him because to be a Christian was a laughable, risible, shameful thing. There was social stigma attached to it to be a Christian at school. So much so that they drew graffiti of him on the wall. You'll get mocked if you're a Christian at school. People will ostracise you in society. Business could get harder if people know that you follow Jesus. So what do believers do when faced with hostility like that? Peter says, let them glorify God in that name. He says, wear the name Christian proudly and adorn it with a life that glorifies God. Worship Christ, work for him, exalt him in your devotion and in your daily duty. Instead of backing off and running scared when your faith is stigmatised. No, press on to your identity in Christ and glorify him that those who mock you for your faith are left without excuse. Joy in the midst of suffering. Blessing in the midst of insult. Worship in the midst of stigma. And finally, verses 17 through 19 Trust in the midst of judgment. There's a lot to unpack in these concluding verses. Let's be clear again on the two main points of the paradox as Peter presents it. Part 1, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. He's thinking of the temple. It's the metaphor that Peter's used in his letter for the church. Judgment will begin in the house of God, the temple, the church... Of Jesus Christ, Part One, but the other part of the paradox, Part Two, is verse nineteen. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So judgment and trusts trust in the midst of judgment. But do you see the paradox, the tension in Peter's teaching? That word "entrust your souls" means to deposit a bit like what you would do with your money at a bank except in those days they weren't banks like we have and if someone was going on a trip I was interested to find out that they would deposit their treasured possessions into the care of a trusted friend who would look after them. We might do the same with our children if parents go on the trip without children we entrust them to valued friends or close family to care for them knowing because of their character they're safe and we can entrust them to them and that's what Peter is saying we must do when as the judgment of God begins in the house of God the church of Jesus Christ we must run to him not from him when suffering comes to help us understand what he means by judgment in the house of God He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them with gold refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Christ will come to the temple, which in one Peter is the image of the church, and He will come like a refiner's fire. That is the language He uses in chapter one and in chapter four to talk about suffering, to talk about God's design in suffering to purify us, to teach us to hold the world loosely and to cling tenaciously to Christ. Malachi says he will refine the sons of Levi, the priests. Peter has said we are all a royal priesthood to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvellous light. So what is the message, the nature of judgment, on the house of God. He's not talking about the final judgment. No, he means discipline through fiery trials that refine us and sanctify us and help us to become more godly and to hate worldliness and sin that remains in our hearts and to become like Jesus so that we may offer sacrifices of praise, lives consecrated to his service in a way that is pleasing to him. I find it a great challenge as Christians. We are here for a, for a short time. Do we want to use our time to become more like Jesus or to become more like the world? Just think about that for, just for a second. Do you want to use your time here on earth to become more like Jesus? Or to become more like the world. So what he's saying is that these trials are to sanctify us. So that we would become godly and hate worldliness. So that we might become more like Jesus. So that we can offer sacrifices of praise. Therefore when suffering comes according to God's will. Let us entrust ourselves. Let us not run from the one who disciplines us. But let us recognise that the trials that come into our lives come from the hands of the father who loves us so let us endure hardship as discipline reminding us that god is treating us as his children when god disciplines us it's because he loves us and run to him learning the lessons that his discipline may teach entrusting ourselves into his perfect care So when trials come, don't run away from the Lord, but run to him. He will keep you. That's what he's saying, he will keep you. He is faithful. You can entrust yourselves to him in the midst of the storm, you will be safe. Trust in the midst of judgment. But it's a call to faith, not just for Christians. Look at verses 17 and 18. There's a warning, there's a call to faith, for non-Christians, Peter says if judgment begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's working with the Greek version of Proverbs 11 verse 13. The word scarcely, probably better translated barely saved. In other words, if believers in the course of their lives undergo discipline from God as he deals with sin that remains in their lives, how will he deal with those who do not not repent of their sin at all when the final judgment comes? I want to speak to you directly if you're not a Christian. I want you to hear Peter's alarm bell sounding. You are not safe. You will not find a loophole in God's arrangements. Never say, I hear what you're saying, preacher, but I will take my chances. Judgment begins with the house of God. And while salvation comes to us, Peter says it comes with much suffering, as God takes our remaining sin so seriously. But if you reject Christ, Peter says, if you say no to the gospel, do you think that you're secure? Given that the discipline of God towards his children How will you escape if you refuse to accept the Lord Jesus as he's offered to you altogether? Maybe you think that God does not really care how you live. Maybe you think you can delay thinking through Christ and his claims on your life. Maybe you think that the gospel is just foolishness. It's just a matter of words and talk. Or the things of rules. Maybe you think you know a better way. Peter says, wake up. And I want you to hear the alarm in Peter's words. There's no escape unless you find it in Jesus Christ. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator. Deposit yourself in the care of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. There's only one safe place of refuge and that's Christ. And he invites you to trust him. Joy amidst sorrow, because Christ is enough. Blessing amidst insult, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Worship amidst stigma, because the shame of the world is the Christian's badge of honour and trust in the midst of judgment. We don't believe in an absent God. He is at work in our lives right now as he disciplines his people and he will come to judge us all. And only Jesus is a refuge for us. Have you come to find refuge in him? May the Lord bless the word for his glory, for our eternal good. Amen.